0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Pulitzer Prize winning historian,
1: Annette Gordon-Reed joins Washington Post Live to discuss her new book on Juneteenth.
0: Let's listen. Good afternoon, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and, an, and another installment in our Race in America series. One day after President Biden turned today Juneteenth National Independence Day into a federal holiday we have the perfect person with us today to explain why this is such a big deal the latest book from Pulitzer Prize winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed is entitled on Juneteenth it's part memoir part history of her native state of Texas and how it fits into the larger American story. And one more thing to tell you about Annette Gordon-Reed. She was there yesterday in the East Room of the White House when the president signed that bill into law making today, uh, well, today is the federal holiday, tomorrow uh, is Mm -hmm. Juneteenth, Juneteenth National Independence Day. Annette Gordon-Reed, welcome to Washington Post Live. Glad to be here, thank you for inviting me. So let's just start Start at the beginning. What what's the significance of Juneteenth becoming an official and the latest federal holiday?
1: Well, it's the story of how Gordon Granger, U.S. Army general, announced on June 19th, 1865, that slavery was over in Texas. And it's significant to have a day of remembering emancipation join other federal holidays that we have to talk about the importance of this topic and it's an opportunity for people to reflect on that. So making it a national holiday, something that everybody celebrates, not just Texans, is a way of bringing that story and the story of enslaved people into closer focus. And also, I should say, uh, the aftermath of slavery and the struggle that African-Americans have still been on uh, from those days until today.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Opal Lee. Um, She's a daughter of Texas. Um, She fought to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Uh, She was honored by the president of the United States who uh, got down on bended knee during the ceremony to talk about it. You were in the room. So put us in the room. Uh, Tell us about yesterday, but also tell us about Opal Lee. Okay. Well, you know, I got, I got the invitation
1: yesterday in the morning to come down to the ceremony, and one of the first things that I thought was, "What about Miss Lee? Will she be able to make it?" I mean, it's one thing for me to hop on the shuttle and get down to mm-hmm. Washington, um, but I, you know, was wondering if she would be able to make it because this, in some ways, in many ways, was really her day. And I was there in the audience, and they near the time that the president was supposed to and the vice president were supposed to come out. They brought an extra chair and put it in the row right in front of mine, right, you know, very close. And then she walked in and sat down, and I felt really good because I've gotten to know her over the course of doing, you know, talking about my book. We've done a couple of events together. Indeed, we done an event the night before, the day before, I should say. And we were talking about, you know, what was happening, the Senate vote and so forth. And we'd known each other before then. And we discussed this topic, thinking about when might it happen. I don't think either one of us thought that it would happen so quickly. And so when she came in and when the president recognized her uh, and had her come up when he signed the bill and gave her a pen and everything, it was just a, a wonderful thing. I had asked her, you know, when, how did you get involved in doing this? And she's she's 94 years old, and she said, "Well, when I was about 89, and then of course I just, you know, I want to stop you right there. When when you're 89, I want to first I want to get to 89, and then I want to be the kind of person who starts on a quest at 89." And you know, she, you know, gather you know gather lots of supporters, and she did you know walkathons, all those kinds of things at her age. Uh, to promote this notion, and then she got to sit there in the and in, in the White House that day and bask in the glory of everybody, just warm feelings towards her, and standing ovations. It it was just a really festive, very very warm day.
0: So let's talk. Let's talk about your book on Juneteenth. Um, you write, uh, quote, for my great grandmother, my grandparents, and relatives in their generation, this was the celebration of the freedom of people they had actually known. Slavery was just a blink of an eye away from the years my grandparents and their friends were born. So to so now knowing all that, the audience knowing all that, what did Juneteenth mean to you in your family when you were growing up?
1: Well, when I was a kid, it was a fun holiday. You know, we drank too much soda water. We threw firecrackers, <laughs> lit spikes, sparklers, ate barbecue and ran around together. It was a fun day. It was sort of, you know, I would have the Black July 4th. I mean we celebrated July 4th as well but this was supposed to be our day in a way. This was a celebration of Black Texans. I'm not really sure if white Texans celebrated it you know when I was a kid. Uh, It became a state holiday in 1980 officially. It first celebrated in 1980 and by then you know news anchors and local news would have stories about Juneteenth and I think it became more uh, an occasion for general celebration, but it was it was a way to think about Black history, really, because you're thinking about you know, thinking about slavery that immediately connects you to the past. And as you said, my great grandmother, uh, her mother was born uh, enslaved, and um, she was freed as a girl by her father, the person who owned her, and along with her mother. So she didn't spend her entire life in slavery, but she was enslaved and. She grew up to marry a man after her, uh, my uh, great grandmother's uh, father died, married a man who was not freed until the end of the Civil War. So these people knew individuals who had been in slavery and I knew those people. So just think about that. I knew someone who knew a person who was enslaved. That's not that long ago. It's a blink of the eye in in terms of history.
0: Right. In terms of history, I mean, a blink of an eye, even faster than a blink blink of an yeah. eye in, in some ways. The, the book also writes about how central slavery um, is to the history of Texas. Talk about the role um, the institution of slavery played in Texas's history.
1: Well, this is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because most people have an image of Texas that centers on West Texas. And the desert and cattle drives and gunfighters and, you know, the cowboy, the cowboy, even though they are black cowboys, obviously, but Hollywood has created an image of cowboys as white. So so that even when you see a black cowboy in the movie, you think they're doing some kind of special thing, putting them there. In fact, there were many black cowboys. So you have that and also the oil man who is a, a white person. And so a white man. Uh, typically, is the the way it's portrayed. But Texas was a slave plantation, a slave society. There were slave plantations throughout East Texas, a huge swath of Texas. Uh, The father of Texas, Steve F. Austin, brought settlers to Texas who were from Georgia and Alabama and those places, and they brought in slave people with them. They wouldn't have come if they had not been able to bring slave labor uh, to to fell the trees and create the cotton empire and so we don't most people i should say many people don't think of texas in that way the south the old south you think of georgia and terra from gone with the wind those mm-hmm. kinds of things texas is not texas is the west well it is it's the southwest it's so large that it is the south and the west and the place that i grew up in was a plantation society and had been a plantation society. And all of the echoes of that were still there, even when I was growing up.
0: You know, you you write in your book about how um, Texas is emblematic of the tensions um, in our history. You say all the major currents of American history flow through Texas. Um, How did your upbringing sort of reflect some of those tensions Uh, Because you're right that you became a a controversial, a somewhat controversial figure at the tender age of six.
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, At the age of six, my parents decided to send me to a white school. We were living in under a time when school districts, not just in Texas, but all over the South, were resisting uh, the effects of Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, This is 10 years after Brown. And they had concocted something called a freedom of choice plan. Freedom of choice, obviously, sounds great. Oh, freedom of choice. Uh, What it really meant was that white parents were supposed to choose the white school and black parents were supposed to choose the black school. My parents decided to buck that tradition and send me to Anderson. And I was there by myself. There were no black teachers, no black students. I was not escorted. To school, even though I learned later that there had been some threats against my family. Probably mm. people didn't, they were credible. And it wasn't in the newspaper. My parents and the school district and the town newspaper, everybody decided that they, uh, they wouldn't make a big deal about it. I would just go to school. And my father took me to school for that first day. And I well, he took me to school most of my elementary school years. I I didn't ride the bus at first because I think that might have been a a bridge too far uh, under the circumstances. And it was an intense time. Uh, Some of the kids were nice to me and some of them weren't. Uh, My teacher, Mrs. Daughtry, my first grade teacher was wonderful to me. She could not have been better in handling the the situation. Um, I recall... um, Educators, people, administrators come to stand in the doorway, looking into the school room to see, you know, what, you know, what was going on there with this black child with with whites, uh, white students. And I, after the freedom of choice plan were de- declared unconstitutional, black students in Conroe had to leave. Booker T. Washington, which was the black school where my mother taught and where my brothers were still attending school. Mm-hmm. And they didn't like that. And there were a lot of people who were quite hostile to me because of that. So I had, you know, there were some whites who were hostile to me and there were blacks who were who were hostile to me as well, because they, I was sort of a symbol of something that they had lost, which was their school, uh, a place where the teachers lived in the community uh, who, May you know went to church with them and so forth. So it was it was a mixed bag there for me.
0: That's a, that's a heavy burden to carry um, at such a at such a young age when you're getting it from all from all sides. Um, you know you you write to put a fuller picture on sort of what Texas's history um, represents. You write no other state brings together so many disparate and defining characteristics all in one. A state that shares a border with a foreign nation, a state with a long history of disputes between Europeans and an indigenous population, and between Anglo-Europeans and people of Spanish origin, a state that had existed as an independent nation that had plantation-based slavery and legalized Jim Crow. I mean, that paragraph right there just uh, crystallizes Texas, Texas's history, but also puts into context a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now that's playing out uh, in Texas, within the Republican Party. But when you were in school, did you learn this history of Texas?
1: Not really, no. I mean, we talked about indigenous people, uh, but mainly in terms of indigenous people and their connections to whites, Uh, not about them, you know, on their own, necessarily. Uh, we may have referenced slavery, but we didn't talk about it in depth. So, no, I mean, I, I didn't find out about all of this or most of this until I, you know, was sort of reading on my own as a teenager until I went away to college. I mean, we learned Texas history, but it was not, I don't think it, I don't recall it being in depth in, in any way that would have caused uh, Dissension, or would it cause dismay from people who were thinking about some of the things that were going on in the past? I mean, slavery—you know, slavery is bad—that's sort of a general thing. But we, I don't think the connection between the formation of the Texas Republic and the institution of Texas of slavery—in that mainly that the Mexicans were, Mexico was opposed to slavery, had abolished slavery, and the Texans wanted to keep it—we didn't talk very much about
0: that part of it. They were the uh, enemy. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Mex- say sounds- <laughs>
1: say that again. I said the Mexicans were the enemy, but that's a tough thing as a black person, knowing that Mexicans one of the reasons they they were enemies is because they the Texians, the white Texians, thought they were going to abolish slavery. So right. not, you, for the Alamo, you cheer for Davy Crockett and all these people, and they're fighting for a republic that would keep that kept my ancestors as enslaved people.
0: And um and also it sounds like the, the way you were taught about slavery, it was at a remove. It was a thing, mm-hmm. it was a thing that happened. It may or may have happened in Texas. We're not going to talk about that, but yeah, it's, it's something that happened happened in the country. You know, and it's um,
1: over
0: importantly mm-hmm. it's over and there are no echoes from it. That
1: that was then and now it's now it's separate. So let's not right. talk and about the,
0: it. And the key thing you just said there is um, after it's over, but also there are no echoes from from mm-hmm. that. And I think that's what we're sort of part of the debate that we're having now in the country. You know, President Biden said yesterday, and I believe he said this in a speech. Um, maybe it's, He may have said this in his Tulsa speech, but yesterday yesterday he said great nations don't ignore the most painful moments. They don't ignore those moments in the past. They embrace them. The president of the United States embraces them. The vice president of the United States embraces them. But at a moment right now, Annette, in our country, there's a huge swath of fellow Americans who don't want to embrace the uncomfortable truths, those painful moments in our history. As a historian, what do you make of this time that we're in?
1: Well, it's, it's a disturbing time. It's a discomforting time because there is a backlash against all of the efforts that have been made over the past, well, really, if we talk about the historiography of slavery, which I think is the crown jewel of American historiography since the 1950s, uh, to bring out a, a more truthful, a more, you know, realistic version of American history. And we're constantly revising history all the time as new information comes along and as historians ask different questions. But I also think it's political in the sense that the sort of apotheosis of all of this would be the election of Barack Obama as president. And I think many white people were happy about that. There's no question that many of them were happy about that. But there were many who were unhappy about it. And many, I think, who were happy about it at the time, but when they actually began to see him exercise power and and to see a first family who's black and cousins and their friends and all that mm. may have had some second thoughts because that's you know, it's one thing to have a black person in a place, but to see that person begin to transform understandings about a place, the, the environment they're in, then that is discomforting to people and there was a backlash. And I think we're still living with that. I, I think there are people who have not gotten over. I mean, what is it we, you know, I, I will confess to say, to saying that I thought that that election was uh, a, a dream sort of thing, right? You know, it's something that I, w- I would never actually have dreamed could happen. But for other people, it was sort of a nightmare because it, it didn't didn't sort of portend the hope um, at, for the future that, perhaps you, that I saw, and perhaps you, I would imagine you saw oh, yeah. as well. So we're still living with that right now. I mean, every era in American history where black people have made an advance, there's been a backlash against mm-hmm. it. And this one has taken an interesting form. It's sort of a repudiation in some ways of democracy, we see. There's something, but this is happening all over the world, really. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little surprised by this, uh, I you know I consider myself to be pretty realistic and a pragmatic mm-hmm. person i I didn't think I would see a time when people would think that it was oh okay, feel nothing about someone storming a capital and you know insisting you know uh, on some sort of you know violent ba- violence based change in in the United States of America and everybody would say, well, some people would say, oh well, that's not a big deal uh, this is this is an interesting era it's a very perilous time i think and you know it all affects race and this is racial because whatever happens obviously in the country whatever anytime something like this happens it's going to negatively affect african americans or disproportionately affect african americans as well so it may not people may not see it as explicitly a racial question although i think race is clearly a part of it it will have applications in how uh, you know the race, the future of race in the country. So we have to be really careful now about how we how we proceed.
0: Yeah, you know, um, to your point about the backlash um, that always seems to happen. There's always uh, black advancement, and then it's followed by uh, backlash among the American people. Carol Anderson wrote um, a terrific book uh, called White Rage, where she chronicles. Sort of the Very... the whipsaw that mm-hmm. that we've been through, and this seems to be one of one of those moments. And also, to your point about the the election uh, of President Obama, I totally got what you're talking about in terms of a dream sequence. I mean, it was a two-year, two year two four year terms, um, but we saw how quickly all that promise sort of. Disappeared overnight, seemingly, with with the election of of Donald Trump. And in President Obama's um, President Obama's book, which I have right here, a, a, a Promised Land, <laughs> he writes about the he writes about the arrest of Skip Gates, a Harvard professor, who was arrested for you know, trying to get into his own home uh, because he couldn't find his house keys. And he writes, President Obama writes that. The loss of support among white Americans was the most he had ever lost and never regained it after that yes.
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I just and thought that was a frustrating moment, just
1: a, it's an amazing moment. The President of the United States, because he referred to something that a police officer did was stupid. you know, a black man calling something that a white person did as stupid was beyond the. I mean, it was like, you can't do that. He's the president of the United States. And what the person did, I mean, it's not. it was not a crazy notion uh, that it was a stupid thing to do under the circumstances, given who Gabe, uh, Skip Gates was and mm-hmm. uh, the circumstances. And yeah, I mean, it, it really showed a kind of the racial a sense that even the, the president of the United States has a place and can step right. out of place. When he says something against a white man, which I think is just speaks volumes about this, about and about our it, situation.
0: Right. And I remember watching that press conference live, and sort of my political hat, I was like, um, he might get in trouble for this, but as a but as a black man, when he said what he said, it didn't it, it did it just sort of washed over me. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, this this is not controversial. What he just said. And in that moment, we we saw sort of the chasm between Black Americans and White Americans when it comes to one, talking about race, and two, relationships with the police. You know, Annette, um, you sort of touched on this in in previous answers, but I want to get real specific in terms of this moment we're in, where you've got states like I think Oklahoma is one of those states that's banning. Critical race theory, as if it's you know some pernicious ideological thing that is being foisted upon, uh, foisted upon students to teach them or to brainwash them, inculcate them into uh, some false reading of history. You are a historian, so could you could you try to explain or give your perspective of why there is so much pushback against even acknowledging the role race and white supremacy plays in every aspect of our lives in this country?
1: Well, I I think it's political. Uh, People are using critical race studies. You know, people are not teaching critical race studies in K through 12. I mean, I'm a law professor. This doctrine, this theory, this notion, these things were formulated by one of my classmates, uh, Kim Crenshaw. Uh, by our, uh, her mentor and a, a Harvard professor, uh, Derek Bell, and many other people. This is something, you know, that law professors talk about, about the pervasive effect of law in uh, of race in the law and seeing the role that it plays, even when it's not specifically about race. But this is not talking about race in and of itself is not critical race theory right you know, critical race theorists write about race and talk about race but not all people who write about race and talk about it are critical race theorists so this disinclination mm-hmm. i think comes from people are harping on it because they know it pushes a button among some members of uh, of the populace and, and just like sharia i mean uh cancel culture mm-hmm. or, you know, any number of things that you pull up as as a boogeyman that uh, is supposed to, overta- supposed to be overtaking the country. Well, you know, critical race theory has been around for decades. Why all of a sudden now that this is some newfangled thing that has, you know, is being taught in American schools? It's it's um uh, it's a ruse. It's a distraction. Uh, it's a culture war distraction to keep people from thinking about uh, a lot of the really serious issues that we have to face in this country. And so, you know. We we have lived in a racial hierarchy. Race matters to many many Americans in a way, and uh, they know politicians and people know that they can push a button. I mean, they used to use the N word to describe mm-hmm. what this is, but now you can't do that. So it's some other thing that's supposed to awaken these very activist, these sort of you know deeply held passionate views about race and make people react rather than, than to think. Now, wait, seriously, are people, re- what first, what is it? And are they really teaching that K through 12? Is this some newfangled thing that's come to the fore? And it really is not.
0: Well, speaking of, I mean, the, um, the Texas Attorney General, uh, Ken Paxton, recently said in a, um, a television interview, quote, we should be teaching American history we should not be teaching that people are somehow unequal.
1: Well, I don't, I don't know what that means. I mean, he's what he's saying is he doesn't <laughs> want to, people to acknowledge that African American people have been treated as second-class citizens. They don't want to talk about the fact that in the hometown where I, where I was born, uh, for periods of time, black people had to be indoors during sundown, before sundown. This is. This was in a democratic republic where they were citizens and they were treated this way. And nobody, you can't talk about that because why? Because it makes certain mm-hmm. people guilty, ashamed of the way their ancestors carried on. Um, yeah, but nobody's saying that they did that. I mean, they have a choice, and the choice is to say, I repudiate that kind of behavior and we're going to move on. But, right. I, not the response. But you, you're basically saying, I'm supposed to deny my family's history so that other people can feel comfortable. And nobody should be made to do that.
0: That's just and untenable. That, yeah. Yeah. I totally agree on that. In the, in the 90 seconds that we have left, I'm going to uh, get you to answer a question from, um, audience question from Ellen okay. Mintzmeyer uh, in Georgia. Her question is, what's the best way to celebrate Juneteenth?
1: With your family, Juneteenth is above all a family holiday, and that's what makes it wonderful. That's why everybody of all races can get with the program of being with family and friends and communicate and you know and communicate uh, values and you know have good food, all of those kinds of things. So I say celebrate with your family. Find a good recipe. I mean, you don't have to have red soda water, um, but it's recommended, uh, a barbecue. But being with your family is the most important thing. And talking about this day and talking about the things that are important in your family. And by all means, take family histories from the elders in in your family.
0: Right, because, you know, American history and Black history are made by all of us every day. You don't have to be famous to make to make history uh, in your mm-hmm. family or in your community. Annette Gordon-Reed, it is great to see you. Great to nice see, see you, you again. Thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for joining us. Come back at 2 p.m. Eastern for a conversation on Black economic mobility with Cecilia Rouse, the chair of the White House Council's Uh, Council of Economic Advisers, and John W. Rogers, Jr., co-CEO of Ariel Investments. Until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Thank you for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.